Is Dr. Caldwell, my my line brother, my jewel. I gotta get, I gotta salute you, of course, before we even get into the episode. <laughs> I appreciate you. First, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to participate in the first season of the podcast. I hope that our listeners will conclude this chapter feeling enriched, gain some understanding, and possibly utilize the information shared in this chapter. We have so much information to discuss. That was something that we talked about before we even started. Um, so with that being said, I am anxiously awaiting to hear your answers. And stating that, let's go ahead and jump right into the interview. For our listeners, please provide your education background and what drives your passion for the conversation that we're going to have tonight. Well, first and foremost, it's always great to be with my, my line brother, my ace, and to um, share in this wonderful podcast and to have this wonderful conversation. I love talking about education, degree attainment, workforce development, economic development, and its impact on our community. So um, I'm honored to be here with you this evening as well. Um, so in terms of my background and my my, my education and upbringing, um, I have my undergraduate degree in music education from University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Um, also have a minor in Spanish. Um, I have a master's degree in religion from Liberty University. And I have a doctor of management degree um, with a concentration in global leadership from Colorado Technical University. Um, in addition to, you know, I have a certificate in advanced intercultural management from the University of Notre Dame. Um, did some um, work um, at Princeton, at the Princeton um, Theological Seminary and their seminary on Black church studies. And um, have a certificate in executive leadership from the Center for Creative Leadership and um, nonprofit director management from High Point University. I also always like to add the school of the school of life and the credentials that come along with just being a black man in America and having to learn how to navigate the system. So um, I think those all that's that's my background in education in a nutshell. That's that's great, brother. I mean, one beyond the professional degrees and your bachelor's degrees and your master's degree and all that stuff. And that's amazing. I'm so proud of you, our line brothers. We have separately um, done some amazing things academically. Absolutely. And I, I am proud to be a part of a, a line of men who are doing some great things. But beyond that, that one thing that I want to recognize that we will talk about eventually in this conversation is the conversation about certifications. And I've had some conversations with our other line brother, Patrick, uh, about, man, certifications is going to be the next wave. And he was saying it's like four years ago. And I was like, eh, I don't know, but I'll keep that in the back of my mind. And here we are now where there's a lot of conversations, a lot of articles being written from this standpoint, from the, the thought process that, Maybe people need to go back to thinking about certifications, thinking Absolutely. about getting those blue collar degrees, um, going back to junior college or community college. It depends on where you're at, what it's called in your city, your state. But that trans 
that transitions us into my first question that I have for you, brother. In a conversation that we had offline, you discussed the importance of workforce development in, in communities of color. This led to several questions in my mind, of course. The first one that I have is uh, for my listeners, please explain what is workforce development? So, you know, workforce development has taken on many names and characteristics, especially now in this um, sort of pandemic environment that we're, we, we are presently in. You know, the, the, the basic premise of it is how individuals and communities sort of work and align together to create economic opportunities for those individuals, um, which generally translates to increase in the number of jobs and opportunities that are available and also creating more connectivity with industry and business to make sure that those communities have viable economic opportunities. And so, you know, workforce development is really sort of the buzzword now for how are we getting people jobs? How are we, how are we making sure that people across the country have access to a job that pays more than minimum wage. You know, it used to just be a push, you know, just get a job, get a job. But that that language of a job is now saying, but maybe we need to think about how can we get people into careers? And so um, workforce development has really shifted. It's shifted from just providing somebody with an employment opportunity to that long list, that sort of continuum of getting credentials, getting certifications, getting the training and the skills needed in order to go into the variety of opportunities that are available. Because, you know, what's you know, what's always interesting. And I say this to people um, all the time is that someone can go into welding and get a welding job anywhere in the country and make almost six figures. And so, you know, when we talk about workforce, it's it's not just specific to, you know, construction work or um, being a secretary or an administrator. It's the whole gamut of um, jobs and opportunities that are available that help increase the economic opportunities for people and people across the world. So great points. Great points, brother. I appreciate that. Um, the next question that I have for you is, why do you feel that it is essential for communities of color to welcome workforce development into their communities to progressively move forward? So that's a great question. And, um, you know, to answer that, I would I would give us a historical perspective Okay. So, you know, if we go back and look at as early as 1619, when Blacks were brought over, workforce then was our sales as the, the workforce. We helped to build this country. We were, you know, we were auctioned off. We were, we were sold and we were branded as these are good workers, these are okay workers, these are bad workers. And for the workforce, when we talked about, when you look at workforce development, then it was less about using it to build a community economic mobility as it was more so to help build individual wealth for the people in control. And so when we move forward, and we get to the late 1800s, we might have been emancipated. We might have been given freedoms, quote unquote. But in terms of economic mobility, we were still not afforded. When I say we blacks were not afforded the opportunity to really leverage economic mobility from a working perspective, i.e., you know, Jim Crow might have ended, but these little thing called black codes came into play and black codes prohibited blacks from 
walking down the street a certain way or opening businesses or doing business in certain places. And when you couple that with the fact that we were all already disenfranchised, marginalized and told that we were not good enough to open up businesses or to do anything but to serve white people, it made communities more dependent on trying to find immediate economic sort of satisfaction rather than long-term generational wealth. Because particularly for the Black man back in the late 1800s, if you had any sort of Black code infraction, you were sent off to prison. Well, while you were in prison, you're, you're, you're amassing a tab. It was, you know, it was just, you were charged $3 for crossing the street wrong, but then you get in prison, you got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to wear clothes, you get a little tab, you're building up debt. And so how then do you pay off this debt while you're still in prison? Your family's on the outside making barely, you know, barely enough to survive themselves How can you create generational wealth or create access to working opportunities that will not just create livable, sustainable wages for your family, but long term generational wealth? So when when the question is asked, why is it essential for communities of color to welcome workforce development? Because we've been so marginalized and disenfranchised that when it comes to working opportunities, we're constantly relegated to go get a job at McDonald's, go get a job at Taco Bell, go get a job, you know, just barely making enough money. No, workforce is so much more than just working at Taco Bell or working at McDonald's. It's creating those opportunities for you and your family in the communities that you live in to create generational wealth. And there are, there are a number, numerous types of jobs that are available now and careers that provide that for families and communities. And we have to be, we have to be more aware of the fact that those jobs exist and we don't have to be directed to one path versus the other. We don't have to constantly tell our kids, well, all you are going to ever get is a job at McDonald's. No, you could own a McDonald's now. You know, you could own a franchise of McDonald's. You know, we've got there's a black man in Greensboro that owns a number of McDonald French, um, McDonald restaurants right here in Greensboro and is doing quite well. And then it becomes a vehicle whereby he's now able to hire more people of color or more people to help work at these restaurants because he's the owner himself. And so that's the importance of creating more access for our communities because there are there are more jobs that could create more sustainable wages and opportunities from families than there have ever been, um, you know, especially now with the impact of COVID and the number of companies and jobs that are looking to hire people. There are opportunities that just didn't exist 40, 50 years ago. I think that having the ability because of technology, right, we have the ability now to work from home. Uh, we're starting to get into this tech space. We're starting get we're starting to get into this space where the job that you did for 15, 20 years previously sitting at your desk, bored out your mind, is a thing of the past for a lot of entities. Now, me and my mother was having a conversation today about how some companies have provided their employees indentured servants. We Technically speaking, since you were talking about yeah. servitude earlier, if you're a W-2 employee, you're still chattel. There's a reason why your mail shows up in all capital letters. Uh, I want people to look up this term called your straw man. Uh, also look up that your social security number is actually attached to. That's why your that's why your birth certificate looks like a, a deed of title. All right. All right. I know we that's not where we was planning on going tonight. Brother, you said so much and answering the second question that it made me think of some scriptures. And I I, I said I was not going to do that today. <laughs> but I will say. Uh, our job here is finished. 
showed up in 1619. Our former president wrote an HR bill that I, I think I've sent it to you via text before, uh, com- commemorating our 400 years. Mm. And, uh, since, since I brought up the scripture, quickly entertain this with me, good brother. This is going to be Genesis 15 and 13 for our listeners. King James Version. And he said unto Abram, know for a surety that thy seed shall be in a, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them for 400 years. And also that nation whom thy shirt serve will I judge and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. So, you know, we've been in this thing for 400 years. We've experienced different forms of servitude, being slaves, being chattel, like you said, the black codes, thinking that due to the Emancipation Proclamation that, oh, that was going to end servitude. And then it, they started using the black codes. So then they, st- they were able to use our labor to build this country just under a different title. Right. So. Why do you feel that communities of color are falling behind other ethnic communities? And when I say communities of color, let me let me be more specific, because Asians, it doesn't matter really, you know, whether they're Korean, Chinese, Japanese, etc. They're able to build businesses and succeed in different arenas. And I don't want to go into all those different arenas. Arabs are able to come from. Different countries come here, open up shops in in our neighborhoods and sell things that are not good for us. You know, although they're in a lot of cases practicing Islam and they they know about dietary law and all that stuff. But they'll sell us blunts and and cupcakes and malt liquor and all this other stuff. So I'm not referring to them. Why do you think more specifically, why do you think African-Americans are behind the eight ball at this point? from a workforce development standpoint? Reading was um, restricted. Learning how to advance was restricted. When you think about sort of the development of industry and work, what society has done was equated that to advancement degrees which they have their place in whatever capacity. But when you think about the development of educational institutions and schools of and schools of training and development, even our HBCUs were rooted in preparing and developing and training black men and women, but it was in specific areas. Like let's just use North Carolina ANT, for example. I mean, it was originally an agricultural and technical institution. So people came to learn about agriculture and technology. Um, And they weren't necessarily learning so much about becoming a doctor or a lawyer because that wasn't the specific focus of the institutions. Um, But there were other institutions that did focus on that. And so it became sort of a geographical barrier where if you couldn't get down to Tuskegee to learn about science and medicine, then based on where you were, you sort of, you had to go in that field based on your geography. And so you get a lot more people around certain areas where their training and background was on growing agriculture and, you know, fixing things and automotive things and technology And so then other institutions restricted us from coming to learn there. So they peeped that we were learning about all this stuff at our HBCUs and in our communities where our kids were learning about school, going to school. And then they started creating these programs and opportunities, but restricting admission to them. So it wasn't that people around the world weren't learning about science, technology, data, infrastructure, law, medicine, agriculture. It wasn't that they weren't learning about that. They just weren't allowing us to gain entrance there. And so that became one avenue 
for creating a barrier and keeping us out, which for years has crippled the Black community because we were already doing this stuff. We made that peanut come turn into something great. We made the light bulb what it is. There would be no Tesla if it wasn't for us creating the stoplight. So it wasn't that we we weren't creative and innovative, especially when it came to creating working opportunities. It was that when the white community saw that we were so creative and so innovative, that they created systems to keep us out. And so why are our communities falling behind? Well, we're behind because they already created this this 400-yard head start that we're slowly trying to catch up to, and it's taking time. And when you're dealing with such a large deficit, it takes it takes years to try to figure out how can we move whole communities up, not just individuals, but whole communities that have been impacted from from the West Coast to the East Coast. I mean, it's just how do we move whole communities up? Affirmative action tried and eh. equity and inclusion is trying. And eh. but the problem with equity and inclusion is people are afraid to be specific, say exactly who they're trying to work with and trying to help. And so then we just, we we create this open brand for BIPOC, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, or um, just people of color and just saying Black folk. Or, you know, we're trying to help our Dominican, whomever it is. And so we've had all these initiatives to try to help the communities of color to sort of catch up. But none of it has been so intentional that it's literally, in essence, when, you know, one of the things I'm learning is that in order to really catch up, you've got to stop. And sometimes America in particular is so afraid of stopping because it wants to stay ahead of everybody that is not willing to stop to let communities of color catch up. So we're always going to have a deficit and it's going to be important for us as people of color, as black people in America to rally together to figure out how can we continue to help bring up our future generations so that we don't, we're not, we're not held back by the barriers that were put in place to keep us, keep us behind. Wow, brother, you, you made so many great points and, not to labor all of them. <laughs> One, I, I I appreciate the, the thoroughness of, of your answer. And I often tell people as an alpha, uh, we give answers, not responses. If you walk away from receiving an answer, if you walk away from a question, still asking questions, um, then that was an indication you got a response. But I will say, I appreciate you pointing out the reality that oftentimes we clump ourselves together under this banner of POC, people of color. And we don't always say, well, what is important specifically to our communities? Right. I have a really good friend of our, a good friend of mine who said to me a couple years ago that success is about the exposure that you allow yourself to be influenced by. And I said, it blew my mind. I mean, it's words I've heard together before. I've heard them separately or whatever the case may be. But when he said the first level of exposure that we had was him and I went to um, UNC Chapel Hill. And that was an amazing experience from an intellectual standpoint, but also an interesting experience because we realized it wasn't a lot of us there who was there on the academic tip. Right. We were there. But in most cases, it was, oh, you play sports and that's why you're here. So we need to start having these conversations that we're, you and I are having now. And I hope that our that our listeners walk away with and have within their own personal communities, their own villages to say, OK, you're in this particular space from a career standpoint. How do I get there? We need to start mentoring mm. people again. We got to mm. get back to that. You know, this thought process of I've achieved success. And you need to get it too, without 
providing the, the components as to how, well, how did you get there? You got to beg and pull from some of our people sometimes. Like, you know, if you don't bow down and reference them, they don't want to give you the game. And it's like, you know, one of our college brothers, and, I, and I'll move on to the next question. I had mentioned to one of our college brothers that I'm transitioning into the IT space. And amazingly, that college brother said, my dad has been in the IT space for 20 some odd years and he's looking for someone to mentor. Let me connect you. And in that conversation, him, me and his dad did have a conversation. In that conversation, he said, I've gathered so much information in these last 25 years. It's time for me to mentor someone else so they can mentor someone else. Yeah. Kind of like an apprenticeship type of thing. And I said, if you give me the opportunity, if you're willing to pour into me, I promise you I'll do it for someone else. So it's it's not just about workforce development. It's also about, hey, this is what I've learned. Let's implement these tools. Yep. But, you know, as we move on to the next question, uh, we briefly discussed the concept of wealth management not solely being connected to traditional four-year degrees or professional degrees. This led me to think about the new concept being mentioned online and in news articles. And that concept is the great resignation. Mm -hmm. Not sure if you heard about it for my lit for our listeners. Rather, the great resignation is this ongoing trend of employees voluntarily, voluntarily, rather leaving their jobs. This term has been noted to be created by Professor Anthony Klotz. I mention this term because I am encouraging many individuals who are now disenchanted with the results of their degree to seek other things. You know, if you're looking at your computer and you're saying to yourself, I hate this job, you know, brother, I realized a couple, I realized a couple months ago from sitting in class to transition to a different career that this whole time I thought I had a career. It was really a job. Right. Right. I was sold a lie, brother. And I'm humble enough to say it on this phone call. I was sold a lie. Go to school, get a degree. Then you go get one of them, as my grandmother was saying. No diss to my grandmother. (laughs) Forgive me, Granny, if you hear this. You need to go and get one of them good government jobs. Yeah. That ain't going to pay you no money when it comes to the reality of getting some real money. They don't give you a couple percent every year. But the long game with that is sit at some desk for 20 some odd years and maybe get retirement if you suffer through 20 some odd years. As I mentioned, I am trying to transition to the IT space. And this has led a lot of people to seek certifications, which was mentioned at the beginning of this this chapter. What are some post-secondary educational opportunities or certifications that you are recognizing as emerging opportunities that maybe our listeners can either look into or encourage their younger family members to look into. Maybe they are already entrenched deeply into their career. That does not mean that this conversation, the answer to this particular uh, question, cannot be passed to someone else. What are some of those emerging opportunities you're thinking? So that's a great question. And want to regress too far back, but I did want to just quickly highlight something you said in terms of the mentoring aspect, because I think even in that, it sort of ties along with this and I'll make it work. To your point, you're absolutely right, because as people think about transitioning or what their careers look like, one of the things that I think prohibits people from taking a shift is that they don't have anyone to mentor, guide, or coach them to the next. And what is baffling to me, even from a racial perspective, what has happened is what I'm finding, excuse me, is that there's sort of this, this reverse racism aspect going on and I wouldn't even say reverse racism but more so this sort of this in-group dynamic that has been 
presented whereby, and we could trace it back to colorism and, you know, how, you know, if you were darker skinned, then you were considered, you know, different than those that were light skinned or fair skinned, you know, fair skinned, you know, spoke to affluency and, you know, dark skinned people were generally those that were working and doing manual labor. Um, But there's this in-group dynamic that's happening now, man, that's, you know, those people that have been in those positions for 20, 30 years, instead of saying like what that brother did for you, let me mentor and like drop some of this wisdom that I've acquired over the last 20 years. There's a group, a very, I would say almost large group that are saying, I've got all this wisdom but unless I perceive you to be as successful as I am, I'm not going to give you any of it right now. Um, you got to basically beg me to get it. And that's so contrary to how we could help move our communities of color forward, how we can help increase economic opportunities for more people. If people wouldn't be so afraid that somebody was going to come in and take their position or their status that they would be willing to just go ahead and share. So I just, and I wanted, I just, I had to get that off of me because you brought it up. And so I just wanted to mention it, but you know, as I'm real quick, real quick, brother, I think that goes back to the house Negro field Negro mentality. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If I give him the game, yep. This goes back to this goes back to this affirmative action thing that this was something major from the seventies and eighties. Yeah. So if I'm the if I'm the token black guy, if I am the person of color in this department, because they have to have a person of color in this department for this particular corporation. If I point you in the right direction, if I put my arm around you to mold you, to guide you, to point you, to help you avoid the pitfalls, will you replace me? Right. There's a law from the 48 laws of power that says you should never outshine your master. Yep. So even whether a person read that book or not, what I try to encourage people who are willing to mold me in different ways is I'm not here to outshine you. I'm humbly thankful for your willingness to pour into me. And I think because we're in that middle space between the age group that's about to retire baby boomers that tell in a baby boomers to us being millennials and the generation behind us, we have to be the ones to kind of break that mold and say, right. Hey, I'm willing to give you some knowledge. Hey, I'm willing to pour into you. Hey, I'm that's willing to, John, if I don't have John 14, that's John 14 all day long. If you believe in me, you'll be able to do greater works. It's not so much that you're going to take away from what I've been doing. You're going to take what I'm showing you and what I've been through and do it even better. That's the highest form of compliment anybody could ever get. We've just been told that it's competition. And that's wasted opportunity and talent. And we don't see that quite often in other communities. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying that it does not exist. Right. Because I'm sure there's a lot of backstabbing that happened in other communities as well. Um, however, I do want to get back to the question because I think it's a very good point, a good question of what are some of those emerging opportunities? What are some things I, I've mentioned tech a couple times already? What are some other opportunities that you're seeing as being an emerging industry or industries for the next five to 10 years? So, you know, and again, one of the things I would urge people to do is if, if you ever get a chance depending on what city, wherever you're at, what location you're in, go and sort of just search whatever the major industry clusters are for your particular area. And so what most places have done um, is they've gone through and created sort of a, a top ranking of the major industries based on employment data, um, hiring practices, And sort of just emerging trends that, you know, and that has a little to do with like supply and demand, supply chain stuff, like what are what are people buying? What are people needing right now? And so I would look at 
your local community data to find out what are those top industry clusters. But, you know, from a from a from a very broad perspective, just looking at North Carolina, IT is one of the top emerging fields, job opportunities. You know, I looked at some recent data from the North Carolina Tech Association as of July of this year. They're projecting like 40,000 new IT jobs, you know, that range from software developers to information technology project managers to information security analysts to computer systems analysts, web developers. And, you know, what a lot of a lot of institutions, particularly four year institutions, because I'll tell you this, the community college system has had a lot of this stuff figured out for years, but we don't. We don't we and I'm throwing myself in 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 this statement. We as a society has has have grossly undervalued the benefit of a community college degree, whether it's an associate's degree or certificate, quick job certification. But they're more adaptive to the to the needs of industry and they can quickly adapt. And if they see that they need to create a program around software developing, they can do that very quickly. Whereas four-year institutions, particularly public four-year institutions, have to go through this laborious process, get board of trustee and governor approval. They have to submit all kinds of documentations and they're not as nimble. But software technology, data analytics are becoming really popular on college campuses right now, whether it's IT, software, whatever, any sort of analytics. And, you know, teaching on a college campus that's a tech-based school, you know, we, we, I know I constantly encourage my students, if you can take a class or if there's some sort of certification that you can embed that has data analytics or computer software, that's what they're that's what these companies are looking for. So IT data, I would also add nursing, allied health, healthcare services are you know one of the top emerging fields. We can see that by the impact of COVID and the need for more nurses, more CNAs, more doctors. Um, more lab technicians. Um, I was talking to um, a friend that said their wife works for one of the lab companies. I said they're probably never going to have to want for a job right now because everybody in America is getting tested for COVID, the flu, whatever, and they're running it through these lab techs. So, you know, there's those are generally the top two areas is healthcare data, technology, and then you're seeing a big push for managers, for business admin, because when you start these tech companies or work for these organizations, you still need HR. You still need um, someone to help with accounting and bookkeeping. And so those are some of the big in-demand areas um, and where we're seeing a lot of emerging opportunities for people to to get to get these good quality high paying jobs it's not just you know settling for a job paying barely above minimum wage people are going into these jobs with certifications without four year degrees still making more than people who went to college to get a four year degree and they only had 6 months of training one of my good college friends told me the same one that said access to information. He's in the IT industry. He told me in 2019, he mentioned that he was transitioning to the IT industry. And he, he briefly went into and, and like you said, he got certifications. There, there's a story behind that. I'll let him tell his story. But he mentioned his first job offer economically. In my mind, I thought my eyeballs was going to fall out my head. <laughs> and he said, Brandon, I'm going to introduce you to something called real money. Right. Not just good money. This is real money. Right. So 
I am willing to sacrifice time, stay up late to transition to this emerging industry. But this is the choice that I made. I'm not good with blood. I'm not good with needles. So the health industry from the applied science side was just not going to work for me. Yeah. But you do not have to be relegated to being in the hospital or the doctor's office. There are people that are traveling nurses that are getting anywhere from three to three to five thousand dollars a week, plus a housing stipend, plus food stipend, things of that nature. So even if you don't want to work at your local hospital, if you're fresh out of community college and you just have whatever nursing degree you can get from the community college setting, you can get your experience, travel. You're in your early 20s. You can go to these different cities, stay for a couple months, make three to five thousand dollars, if not more. Yep. A week. Yep. Not a month. Three to five thousand dollars a week. Yep. That's amazing money. This is a great opportunity for people, especially African-Americans, blacks, whatever they want to be called, whatever we're called this week. Right. For us to change our life economically. Yep. And it doesn't require this old mindset of, well, I just got to go to school for 10 years and then I'll get to the six figure bag. Doesn't require all that anymore. But some other industries that you that I want to mention to our listeners is getting into construction. You mentioned earlier about um, steel workers yeah. or, or welding. Rather, I, I, want, I stand corrected. You were mentioning welding. If you go to some cities, not only are you going to get paid amazingly, you're going to be a part of a union. Yeah. And that comes with its own set of benefits. But there's a massive need right now for electricians. There's a massive, massive need for plumbers. There's a massive need for welders. Yeah. So if you're better with your hands as a man or a woman, you're better with your hands. And you don't see tech as your is your route. You don't see nursing as your route. There's other industries. And like like you mentioned, brother, I encourage people to do their own due diligence study. And show yourself approved. Absolutely. Don't depend on what uh, Dr. Caldwell is saying. Don't depend on what I am saying. Think to yourself. Ask yourself first. Do you hate your job? Let's start there first. Absolutely. Do you have a career? Do you have a job? And then once you ask yourself that question and you have some time where you're willing to still work, then ask yourself, what type of development do you want to allow yourself do you want to dedicate that time to to transition to an emerging industry? Please, listeners, I encourage you. This is an amazing opportunity. This is like, but I would say this is maybe like the 60s or the 70s where people were really starting to get into making some money. Maybe even the 80s. I don't know. But this is amazing opportunity. And that's why we're having a great resignation, because people are recognizing I don't have to do what I'm doing right now, especially if it's not really speaking to my passions. Right. But I want to move on to the next to the next question, brother. Now that we have discussed opportunities for communities of color to change their economic standard of living, let's talk about a concept that is not often discussed after achieving educational success. And that's the concept of economic interference. Now, I'm going to be humble with you, brother. Now, I didn't. I've never heard that term before. So for our listeners, can you please provide what are examples of economic interference? We might have run into it and just didn't know that it was a term attached to it. So what are some examples of economic interference? Economic interference is something that I have sort of phrased and developed as I have started you know, really trying to understand economic development from a community of color perspective. What does that look like? And to our earlier points about sort of the historical impacts of economic development for black and brown people in America, you know, those those economic 
interferences, if we would, to, you know, speak about the many rather than just the one. Look at something as simple as redlining and how, you know, that was in and of itself a sanctioned government practice. You know, that goes back as far as the Roosevelt administration and the FHA, like the Federal Housing Authority, literally would go and look at different areas to determine whether they were unfit for investment. And so if we're looking at economic interference, telling communities that your neighborhood is less than your home is not as valuable as the white person's home right across the street because you're black, that's deliberate economic interference to devalue a person's um, possessions and assets to the point to make somebody else's more valuable is economic interference. And it has plagued the, the black community for years to the point where black home ownership is still very low. Black access to, to high quality credit is still very low. Um, when we look at business loans and access to capital for black entrepreneurs, it's still much lower than that of their white counterparts. If you want to modernize it and talk about some an economic interference, we can look at the, the data that came in just recently from when the federal government issued PPP loans to small businesses and businesses across America. Well, almost 80% of all PPP funding went to white-owned businesses. So, you know, it was between 10 to 15% went to Black-owned businesses, if it was even that high. And so how then is that economic mobility when you're telling Black businesses who always who already have a higher rate of closing in their first year if they're a small business than they do their white counterpart, that we're not, you're not good enough, your, book, your books are not updated enough, your accounting practices are not um, structured enough for us to allow you to qualify for this funding. So now you've got to close up shop and whatever money you raised and saved up to start this business, you just SOL. And so those are those when we look at economic, those deliberate economic, intentional economic things that keep the black community from amassing better economic mobility, we can trace it back to, again, the systems that were put in place right here in our country, i.e., again, redlining and other practices. So, you know, those are some of the, that's, when I think about it, it's those things that we can intentionally say cause deliberate, deliberate blockage for Blacks in this country to amass generational wealth. Well, I hate to be an advocate, I'm not going to say devil's advocate, I hate to be an advocate for the contrary point of view. You made some great points, but I will say this, using my podcast, for example, thankfully, I have some people in my life who have given me some branding tips and some management tips on regard regarding this podcast, doing things the right way, doing paperwork the right way. If I say I'm going to start an interview at at that time, I'm going to start it at that time. So I said that to say this, that we in the black community, we have to learn to do better business. Can't do the homeboy business, the homeboy hookup business. Got your person that you think is cool with the books. They're really not good with the books. So we do have to do better on our business. True. Absolutely. I, I, I'm not negating your point about the numbers because men lie, women lie, numbers don't, right? So I'm not going to negate the data, but I still want to say that what we can, what we should do in our communities is if you're going to be an entrepreneur, we have to do good business. You mentioned in the previous section that 
there's more than likely going to be a need for more accountants and people in HR and things of that nature. If you have a business, you do not have to think that is this is such a steep hill to get people that are skilled in this area. There's a lot of people that have that believe in the gig system. So you can go to websites like Fiverr and Upwork and find an HR rep. You can find someone as account that has a background in accounting. So if you are struggling with your books and you recognize that there's an issue in keeping good book management, you can hire someone, which would be a tax write-off for your business. So your business is good. But that leads me to another question for you. Same talking point. What are some ways that we can overcome economic interference? So, you know, one of the things that I'm really advocating for now is creating our own economic and entrepreneurial ecosystems and how we can create our own sort of communities within community. So to your point, how can we leverage people within our community who already have training and experience in accounting or bookkeeping or marketing and branding? Or how to start a business, how to experience with networking, all those things to help create our own sort of viable ecosystem that then helps us to create our own viable pools of capital and resources. So we're not dependent on loans from banks who have historically denied Blacks opportunities for loans or business, home, whatever or giving them such high interest rates that they can never pay them back or they'll be paying them back until the day they die. Um, We can create our own banking systems, our own um, um, non-dilutive opportunities for businesses or building our own buildings and using our own contractors or creating our own health clinic clinics within our own communities and employing our own black doctors and nurses and giving students who are interested opportunities to shadow and mentor. So creating our own sort of ecosystem, you know, Tulsa was a model and looking at how you can create your own economic entrepreneurial community within a community ecosystem and see it thrive. I mean, they had some of the most black millionaires because their communities and it was it wasn't just one person with all the money. There were multiple people in those in that community that were able to help create generational wealth. The same could be said about pockets in Wilmington, North Carolina, and other places around the country where those opportunities were the same. There was this notion of this community within a community, um, and that's not oblivious in you know different cultures and society. It's just, and even to us, it wasn't even foreign to us. You know, even when we developed our own religious practices, it was, you know, in some ways done in protest to the white community's religious practices because we had to bring our own Afrocentric tendencies, you know, the foot stomping, the hand clapping, the body gyrating, the 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 expressions of faith that were not common to white Christians, per se. Um, and so it's not oblivious for us to figure out how to create our own communities within the communities. But that's I'm that's what I'm thinking. That's how I'm feeling in terms of how do we overcome this? We have to create our own ecosystem. I'm so glad that you mentioned this because I've said to people. And I have people look at me like I have four heads when I say this sometimes that the biggest mistake that I believe our forefathers made is fighting for desegregation. Mm -hmm. We did so well for ourselves when we were segregated. Now, I get that that success came by way of having no other option. We had to create businesses. We had to create our own opportunities because there was no other option. And our brother, Brother Silent Drummer, Brother King said, I am afraid that I have sold my people into a burning house, fighting for things that I don't want to speak for our brother, but fighting for some things that he possibly realized 
what we would be faced with at this point. The fact that we're having that we're even having this conversation right now, brother. Right. And we're even having this conversation. He recognized, I presume that he recognized then that we're not going to get the intended outcome by what we were doing at that time. Yeah. But um, I would like to move on to the next question. And as a setup for that question, there is a major conversation about canceling school debt. Our current president has canceled the debt of millions of citizens. However, there are millions of other individuals who are still drowning in their education debt. This is preventing those individuals from achieving other wealth building opportunities, specifically is affecting the ability for many to purchase a home. And what we're about to see, as I state that, what we're about to see here is something that's probably going to be worse than the housing crash in 2008. There's a lot of people that have not been paying their their mortgage, <laughs> had a job, was getting all type of stimulus checks, still didn't pay their mortgage. Yeah. And now they're about to lose their home. And thankfully, I'm in a position to buy one of those homes. If not more, um, I am going to buy some homes by way of taxation. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, we have a fraternity brother who's going to walk me through that process. But guess what I'm going to do with that game? I'm going to give it to some other brothers. Yeah. I'm not going to sit on it. I'm going to give some other people the game. But this leads me to some questions regarding the cancellation of debt. Do you think our current president will cancel the overwhelming debt that many individuals of color are buried under? Oh, wow. I wish people could see the gesture <laughs> that you just made. Um, go sorry. ahead. I'm sorry. I, and I had to think. I, I had to think. I was like, oh, I forgot. I'm not directly on camera. So let me make sure I fix my face. That's a that's an interesting question. You know, I can't say with certainty because I'm not I don't have any strong connections to his the secretary of education or department of education. But what I do know is that we are at nearly one point seven trillion dollars in student loan debt nationally, that if we look at it by the numbers just by state in North Carolina, billion of the 1.7 rests in North Carolina alone. If I were to extrapolate that just by race, about 11% of that, almost 12, rounded up to 12% of that $45 billion is people who live in this state making student loan payments. Blacks account for making loan payments of about 30 percent of all loan payments over three hundred dollars are by black students in North Carolina. So blacks in America, especially in North Carolina, account for a very significant portion of the student loan debt. What we do know is that if he were to cancel it, home ownership would go up, businesses would grow and develop. Um, we would see an entrepreneurial boom because you would be able to qualify for more for more money and get better access and resources because um, you're not tied to paying a thousand dollar student loan payment and a thousand dollar rent payment for your business. So we do know that if there was a complete cancellation that when we talk about generational wealth opportunities, people of color who have been told and bought into the system that in order to get that good government job, as you said, you got to get that good four-year degree, wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be constrained to getting that good four-year degree and having to pay $50,000 to do it. There are things in place, like some states, North Carolina, have fixed tuitions to try to cap the amount of student loans that people take out. But then the problem with that is that's tuition. Doesn't account for fees, books, housing, food, um, all those auxiliary, ancillary stuff that, you know, 
whether you stay on campus, it's a decision of whether or not you stay on campus before because you can afford it or you go to a school that's nearby home so you can stay at home and save them, save them coins. So it's just, you know, we do know that if there was some level of cancellation, whether it was full, partial, quarter, you know, give me, it will greatly impact and increase the economic viability and mobility for a lot of black and brown people in America. I'm hopeful, but I'm cautious because to do that would mean that you're canceling almost a trillion dollars, almost $2 trillion worth of debt. I just don't know if America is going to allow people to get out of that much, to your point, indentured servitude. Thank you, brother. And I'm glad I patiently waited for you to get all of that out because this is what I've been trying to tell people. We sat and we bought into this thought process that our current president, that there's a possibility and he has canceled some debt. So I stand corrected. There are some people that I've argued down and said he's not going to cancel any debt. He's canceled some debt. Right. No, absolutely. I cannot take that away. But some of these people went to some schools they should have never went to. Let's just be clear and honest. Okay, I'm not going to name the particular institutions, but there are some schools people should have really done their research on those schools. And now they're they are defunct institutions. And I use institutions very loosely for those particular schools. But I will say this. There's more to be gained out of being controlled economically. So if they have you under hoodwink for whatever number it is that's associated with your loans, then you may feel even more trapped to that job that you have. Yeah. You may feel like, man, I don't want to transition to something else. This is another reason why our listeners, if you are in a position to change your career, to change your career. Because you might have a better chance to pay that loan back if you find a job paying you well into the six figures and you live a modest lifestyle. than waiting on uh, our current president to devise what number him and the director of education wants to come up with. That's an equitable number for everyone that has loans beyond that. I would say from a, from an accounting standpoint, that money has to come from somewhere. Yep. I understand we spend fake money every day. Fiat currency is the term that is associated with the petrodollar, but it still has to come from somewhere. And we're already in massive debt, especially after giving out all these stimulus checks, <laughs> uh, trying to keep the economy up. That's why gas is $3 and some, some change. That's why your milk, if you, if you still drink cow milk, That's why milk is expensive. Eggs is expensive. You know, all this stuff is going up. Toilet paper. Because we just keep throwing our fake money at situations instead of changing our situations, instead of investing in industries. We've been spending money overseas worrying about other people's problems instead of investing in our people and trying to diversify and improve the intellect of our people in the future but this has been a a very lengthy conversation brother and i see now if you have the time let's try to have another conversation and build some other points regarding this particular topic and maybe some other topics maybe i can have you on for season two god willing but as we close i always ask people if there was a thesis statement that you can provide regarding the topics that we've discussed thus far, what would that thesis statement be? When I think about that, I've got a couple of things running through, but I think where I'm ultimately settling is settling on this, this, this thought of the racist, the race to success is not necessarily defined by the accumulation of wins, but is rather, you know, the ability of a people who have been systematically oppressed 
to overcome through the power of self and community. And so how do we not define and measure success by things, but rather our ability to overcome the systemic oppression that has kept us from achieving any level of self-sufficiency and community building. And so that's, that's what I would sort of end this conversation with in terms of a thought for people to consider is not looking at success by measurement, but success in terms of our ability to overcome systematic oppression. If we can get past the barrier of those, as I said earlier, those economic interferences, those deliberate things that have historically kept Black people from amassing wealth, creating and getting great paying jobs and establishing communities and generational wealth, that to me is the measure of success rather than the stuff I've got. The phone I got, not successful, but whether or not I've been able to overcome so that myself can find opportunities and better myself, which in terms help better my community, then that's what I would like for for it to be said when I depart this earth. May the work that I've done speak for me. Wow. May the work I've done speak for me. I I want our listeners to embrace that for a second. I we have gotten into this space of people being about me. It's all about me, 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 me. Uh, there's this concept. The the fourth degree of self-indulgence is called media. That was an idea that was introduced to me about two weeks ago. I was wondering where these these words that we use, why they're called, why we, we, we call it spelling words, because we're casting spells. But that's that's another conversation for another day. But media is the fourth degree of indulgence and. A lot of people are so caught up in what they look like, the stuff they have. But when you pull all that stuff away, there's really no substance there. Absolutely. And and I hope that with this first initial conversation that people have received some information that they can either utilize themselves. And I know this is a, a brief overcast of something that we can possibly talk about for two, three more episodes. But I hope that this is a good appetizer for people to say, okay, this is perfect timing for me. I was already thinking about transitioning to something else. I hope that you take some of these tips, some of the things that was mentioned in this conversation and pass it along to some others. Hey, even pass along this episode if you feel encouraged to do so. To you, my good brother, I appreciate your time. I look forward to having this conversation again. To my listeners, I hope that you have gotten some out of this conversation. And as I say to many people that I come into contact with, I hope that you leave encouraged. Welcome to The Thesis, a podcast where we unlock the thoughts of time. Can you help me? Yeah. Uh,